All right, we're jumping straight in tonight. So, we're going to go through Daniel 8 tonight. And last week we went through Daniel 7, which was the first of four visionary experiences that Daniel has in the latter half of the book. And the main thrust of that vision was that four empires were going to rise up, and in the days of the fourth empire, a ruler would rise up who would make war on the saints, the people of God. And this is symbolized by a little horn who makes war on the saints. And the signs point to the little horn being a Jewish ruler, probably the Herods, and those who oppose Jesus with Herod. But even as that rabble is gaining power and wearing out the saints, God will give judgment in favor of the saints, and their opponents will be defeated, and the saints will receive the kingdom through the Messiah who leads them. So that kind of summarizes the vision from last week in Daniel 7. This week we're in chapter 8, which is the second of Daniel's four visionary experiences. And because the time periods roughly coincide, some elements appear in both visions. So if you've had a chance to read both recently, you would notice that both visions have animals that appear in sequence. Both visions have a little horn that has great power and attacks the people of God. Both visions have otherworldly beings communicating the meaning of what Daniel sees. Both visions have Daniel experiencing alarm and dread over what he experiences, over what he sees. And both visions point to the pattern of tribulation, divine judgment, and vindication of the saints. Alright, so with that, we will jump into the text. So go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 8 if you're not already there. And we're going to start at verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this vision occurs two years after the vision of Daniel 7, the first one that he has. Belshazzar is still king, which means that the Babylonian Empire is still in control, still at the front of God's empire, for now. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw... I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So in the vision, a ram stands on the bank of a canal. And a, a canal is a waterway that has banks on both sides of the water. And the ram will later be joined by a male goat. And both are going to represent kingdoms that we've already seen, but they're going to do so in a different way. So if you remember in the vision in Daniel 7, we saw a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Those are predator animals that devour. But here, we have a ram and a goat. And those are not wild animals. Those are not predators that devour. Instead, they are sacrificial animals. They're animals that are part of the sacrificial system in Israel's worship. A goat was used, it was sacrificed to cover unintentional sins. So this is in Leviticus 4. A goat was sacrificed to cover unintentional sins, things that you didn't mean to do. So we might think of this as having dirt on your hands that you need to get washed off. 
a ram was sacrificed to, uh, to cover trespasses, which are more serious sins. They're like having blood on your hands that you need to wash off. Also, the Passover ritual could use either a ram or a goat. Both rams and goats were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. That was the one day in Israel's calendar where the sum of Israel's sins were gathered together and covered over. So the first thing that we want to say about the ram and the goat is that they are sacrificial animals. And we should have that in mind as we watch this, the rest of this vision unfold and learn what it means. A little bit further down in verse 20, the angel Gabriel will identify this ram as the kings of Medea and Persia. And we know that that's the second of the four empires. And the goat is the king of Greece, which is the third of the four empires. And so these are four nations that are symbolized as members of the flock. And the idea is that by offering rams and goats, Israel is serving as a priestly nation to the other nations of the world. Israel is being a priestly nation for the sake of the other nations of the world. The rams and goats that were offered at the temple were in place of the ram and the goat, which is why Persia and Greece are in this vision. And the offerings that Israel gave were never for Israel alone, but always also with the sins of the whole world in mind. And so the people of God intercede for the whole world. They always have, and we still do. We still, as the people of God, intercede for the whole world. Now this ram charges in three directions, which points to the expansion of its kingdom. No one can stand in its way. But it says he did as he pleased, and he became great. And this is more of an indictment than a positive statement. Uh, over time, the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire made themselves great. They built themselves up, and they began to fall away from God. And when kings make themselves great, they don't rule well. And God decides that it's time for the next kingdom to take their place. So verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, they, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So this male goat is the king of Greece. And the goat comes from across the face of the whole earth and doesn't touch the ground. And if you remember in Daniel 7, the third beast is a leopard with four wings on its back. And so that leopard can fly. And here, the, the, uh, the goat doesn't touch the ground, so it can fly as well. So the kingdom of Greece apparently can fly, right? Or the king of Greece. What, really what it's meant to show is the swiftness with which this empire can attack and take over. And the goat is enraged, and it runs with a powerful wrath. And one way to look at this is that the goat is enacting God's rage, God's wrath toward the kingdom of Medo-Persia because it had, they had made themselves great and they had begun to fall away from God. And so uh, the kingdom of Greece is enacting God's rage against them. But the goat 
also makes himself great, it says. And at the height of his power, the one conspicuous horn is broken. Now, this is going behind the Bible a little bit. It's going behind the text a little bit. But the evidence is very strong for identifying the, that horn and that king as Alexander the Great. And if you know anything about Alexander the Great, he conquered a lot of territory, but he also died at the age of 30. So he didn't live very long. In his prime, in the midst of the prime of his conquest, he was broken uh, because he had made himself great. And four other horns take his place, and they spread toward the four winds of heaven. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the four winds of heaven and how the four winds of heaven are the saints. And they're the faithful people of God. And so the kingdom of Greece begins to spread out toward the four winds of heaven, which means that the kingdom of Greece takes in the people of God. The kingdom of Greece is now where the people of God are going to live. That's where the people of God are going to exist, through this kingdom which has made itself in charge. Does that make sense? All right, verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So in Daniel 7, we had a little horn that's given power by the fourth beast, and it makes war on the saints. So when we see this little horn... We should assume that it's the same little horn as in Daniel 7 until that theory gets uh, displaced by evidence. We should assume that it's the same little horn. Uh, God communicates in the Bible through repetition and through patterns. So when we see things over and over, we're meant to make associations. So when you see in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, but also in Exodus, when you see a well, what should you expect to happen after you see a well? Anybody know? I know this has been a topic of conversation in the girls' house before. Charles. Okay, there should be a woman by it, and there should be a marriage that follows after it. When you see a well, you should think, ah, there's probably going to be a marriage that comes out of this. And likewise, when we see this little horn in this vision in Daniel 8, we can reasonably relate it to the little horn in Daniel 7. And I think, as I said last week, Daniel 7, the little horn uh, symbolizes the rebellious Jews, and in particular the Herods, but also the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, all those who oppose Jesus and his followers. And so when we see this little horn appear, we should expect an enemy from the people of God toward the people of God. This little horn is an enemy that comes out of the people of God. It's rebellious, but it also is an enemy toward the people of God. And this little horn makes itself great, and its power grows right on track with the previous vision, even toward the glorious land, which is probably Jerusalem, where at the time of the vision, the temple sits in ruins, but it's going to be rebuilt. And this little horn go grows great even to the host of heaven. It's like a little Tower of Babel that grows. And remember the Tower of Babel, they wanted to build a tower that would extend up to the heavens. This is not good. And some of the host and some of the stars are thrown down to the ground. In the Bible, stars are a way of talking about people and often a way of talking about rulers. 
So Daniel 12.3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Paul also points to the Philippian church as shining like stars in the midst of where they live. Well, here we can connect stars to the rightful priests who would serve in the temple. And we can, serve, uh, we can tie the host that's thrown down to the Levites who assisted the priests. You had priests and you had Levites who did, conducted temple worship. And the little horn attacks the rightful priests and attacks the helpers, the Levites, and casts them to the ground and tramples them. And the little horn becomes great even to the prince of the host. So who's the prince of the host? Well, probably somebody who has authority to offer sacrifice because it says that the regular burnt offering is taken away from him. The regular burnt offering is taken away from the prince of the host. And that would probably be the rightful high priest. So the little horn becomes as great as the rightful high priest and takes the rightful burnt offering away from him. And the regular burnt offering is not just the morning and the evening sacrifices, but it's the whole sacrificial system. It's everything that Israel did for themselves, but also for the nations. It's the continual daily activities in the holy place. So it's the sacrifices, but also the lampstand, the showbread, the incense. It's everything. And the daily offerings and the continual annual cycle involved the nations of the world. As long as the Jews were faithful to pray for the nations, offering rams and goats for the imperial leaders, they would have good rams and goats for their leaders. They would have good rulers ruling over them as they lived in the world. And the same idea is true today. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions that they may lead that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so we intercede for our leaders and we pray for good rulers it can only be good for us when we do that but we're told that the little horn takes away the regular burnt offering from the prince of the host. And the rightful high priest can no longer offer the regular burnt offering, which means that the sanctuary is overthrown. And God-ordained worship, which has the nations in view, is trampled. It's not abolished, but it's carried on contrary to, to what God had ordained. And verse 12 says that a, a host will be given over to it. And that means that the little horn will install its own host. The little horn will install its own people in worship, and not the rightful Levites. It won't be God's leaders in the temple, but whoever the little horn wants there. And because of this, it says that truth is thrown to the ground. The faithful and true are thrown to the ground, and everything about right worship becomes completely false. And Daniel sees this, and he sees the little horn continuing to prosper. And it's a bad situation that he sees, and he knows that God needs to intervene. And that takes us to the next part, which is verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So Daniel hears a holy one speaking, 
But it, we're not actually told what the Holy One says. We're only, we are only told what another Holy One says back to the first one. And the question is, how long will this period of time be when worship is profaned by the little horn and his appointed host? And the answer, which is told to Daniel, not the other Holy One, is 2,300 evenings and mornings. And this probably means 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices combined, not 2,300 total days. But there's more to the 2,300. There's some symbolic things going on here. So in Jeremiah 25.3, Jeremiah says that he has spoken persistently to Judah for 23 years, but they have not listened. Jeremiah has spoken persistently to Judah for 23 years, but they have not listened. So that'd be 23 times 100, and 100 is a number of fullness to get to 2300. But more significantly, in 2 Kings 12, King Jehoash declares that money should be collected for temple repairs. And in verse 6, we're told that in the 23rd year, the priests had made no repairs on the temple. So money's been collected over 23 years, but no repairs have actually been made on the temple. In other words, the temple has been neglected for 23 years. And in a, in a corresponding way, temple worship, represented by the 2300 morning and evening burnt offerings, will be in some sense neglected. It'll be carried on, but it'll be carried on through the devices of the little horn. It will not be right. It will not be God-ordained worship. Um, but at the end of the 2300 false morning and evening sacrifices, the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. The sanctuary will be restored. And this good outcome that God brings about should remind us in Daniel 2 of the stone that's not cut by any human hand that smashes the statue on its feet and becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. And it should remind us of the one like a son of man who receives the kingdom from the ancient of days in Daniel 7. And it's just like the deliverance of the three men from the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 and the deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den in Daniel 6. It's the pattern of tribulation and divine judgment and the vindication of the saints. There will be the deliverance of the righteous in the end after much persecution. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So if you were thinking, hey, I know that guy with Gabriel, you do know that guy. That's the one who appears to Zechariah and then appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, many years later. And the voice that commands Gabriel commands him to make Daniel understand the vision. What I think is interesting, too, is that the voice comes from between the banks of the Uli. Now, again, the Uli Canal would have been a waterway. So if the voice is coming from between the banks, that means the voice is coming from either in the water, which I think is unlikely, or from above the water. It's floating above the water. Or, I think we could say, it's hovering above the water. And a voice hovering above the water reminds us of the Spirit in Genesis 1-2, which says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And just because it's a man's voice doesn't mean that it can't be the Spirit that Daniel hears in the vision. The Spirit speaks in a recognizable voice. And Gabriel's told to make Daniel understand the vision. So I think this is the Spirit talking to Gabriel to make Daniel understand the vision. And Daniel becomes frightened and he falls on his face 
But he's told that the vision is for the end. And so we would want to ask, the end of what? What end is in mind here? Um, And I think the answer is the end of the age, or at the very least, the end of the stage of history in which God's house exists in these four successive empires. That's the end that Gabriel is to make Daniel understand. That time will have an end when God's house operates through these four successive empires. But this vision is in the third year of Belshazzar. So the first of those empires, Babylon, is still in charge. So we have a long way to go before the end. When we get to Revelation, last book of the Bible, John says that he's referring to things that must soon take place. And most of Revelation depicts happenings that don't happen at the end of the space-time universe. That's not what's in mind but at the end of the empire age, at the end of the fourth kingdom, which began with Babylon around 605 BC and ends with Rome in the mid-60s to the 70s. That's the, age, that's the end of the age that Daniel has in mind here. Does that make sense? Verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So Daniel falls into a deep sleep with his face to the ground. This will also happen in chapter 10. The same thing will happen. He will fall into a deep sleep with his face to the ground. And we should think of other deep sleeps in the Bible. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he takes out his rib, and he builds Eve out of the rib. In Genesis 15, Abram Abram divides sacrificial animals and God comes to him and puts Abram in a deep sleep and prophesies to him and makes a covenant with him. Jonah falls into a deep sleep below decks on the ship as a storm rages and God comes to him and saves him through the great fish. And now it seems that God's coming to Daniel to show him what will happen at the end of the age. It comes through a deep sleep. But we should ask, I think, and somebody asked this at youth last night, why, why is it important for Daniel to know what's going to happen at the end? The things that Daniel sees aren't going to happen for another 500 years. And I think I said last week a couple of times that biblical prophecy is never just general information about the world. It always has the people of God in focus. What good is it going to do Daniel to learn about things that are going to happen in 500 years or so? And I think the answer is that this is not for Daniel's benefit only, but it's for those who will read what he's written down. Um, From Daniel's day until the end of the age, there are those who are going to read Daniel's book, and they're going to know what to look for. They're going to know how evil operates in these different kingdoms, and they're going to know what the little horn looks like when it rises up and makes war against the saints. And they're going to know that tribulation is coming, but when tribulation comes, divine judgment has already been cast and vindication will soon follow. So it's not just for Daniel's benefit, but it's for the benefit of all who will read the book of Daniel, including us. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So the king of bold face is the little horn, the one I've said refers to the Herods and all those in league with the Herods. He is of bold face. 
And I think I mentioned last week that the little horn in Daniel 7 is burned with fire because that's the punishment in Leviticus for a priest's daughter who disgraces her father. In Proverbs 7, there's an adulteress who throws herself at a young man who's passing by her house. And we're told that she's dressed like a prostitute and that she's wily of heart. And it says in in, uh, Proverbs 7, She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. And he goes to her house, and we're told that he's led like an ox to the slaughter. And an ox is a sacrificial animal, right? So we have a sacrificial connection, and we have an unfaithfulness connection in this king of bold face, which again is why I think it points back to a Jewish rebel. Verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So the king's power will be great, but it won't be by his own power. And remember I said last week that the Herods only had power because it was given to them by Rome. Herod wasn't really a king, but that power was given to him by Rome. So it wasn't his own power. But they do have power to make war on the saints, destroying mighty men and the people who are the saints, just as in Daniel 7. Verse 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So we've already been told that the little horn would rise up against the prince of the host, the chief priest, or the rightful high priest. Now Gabriel says that the little horn will rise up against the prince of princes, which were meant to tie to the one like a son of man in Daniel 7, who receives the kingdom from the ancient of days. And I think both point ahead to Jesus himself, the incarnate Son of God. Both point to the little horn rising up against Jesus, the prince of princes. And remember that Herod the Great tried to have Jesus killed as an infant. He sent out and have all the holy innocents killed. So we know that Herod the Great tried to do that. And Herod Antipas was involved in Jesus' crucifixion and became friends with Pilate on the day that Jesus was crucified. So the Herods do rise up against the prince of princes, as do the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. But he will be broken by no human hand. No human hand. Again, we should think of Daniel 2 and the stone that's carved out by no human hand that smashes the statue on its feet and becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. And the feet were iron mixed with clay, the Romans, that mixed with the rebellious Jews, that includes the Herods. And remember that Herod Agrippa in Acts 12 is killed by God himself. He's killed by no human hand. He's the one who uh, is not humble and God strikes him and he's eaten by worms. He's killed by no human hand. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So Daniel's told what's to come, but he's also told to seal up the vision. It's not going to happen in his lifetime, and it's not going to happen in the lifetimes of the next several generations. But at the end of Revelation, during the Roman Empire, an angel tells John, do not seal up the words of prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, and I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel lay sick for many days, just like it says that he was alarmed in his thoughts and that his color changed at the end of the vision in Daniel 7. 
And I think this says something pretty remarkable about Daniel, that he lay sick for many days. He's had a vision of something that's not going to happen in his lifetime. It is not going to affect him personally. It is not going to affect his life. And yet he grieves. And he physically takes on and feels the pain and the burden of what will happen to the people of God. Contrast this with King Hezekiah in 1 Kings. Or, I'm sorry, in 2 Kings. Upon hearing from Isaiah that in the future... Uh, all that he has will be taken away, and his sons will be carried off to Babylon and made eunuchs. And Hezekiah says, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And it says, For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Hezekiah thought, Oh well, won't happen to me. I'm not going to have to deal with it. But Daniel grieved over the future people of God. He could see what would happen to the future people of God, and it grieved him, and he lay sick for many days. Okay, one point of application for tonight. One, one point of meditation, something for us to take from this. And that is that we are a house of prayer for the nations. The church, we the church, are a house of prayer for the nations. Um, if you've ever had concerns about the story in the Gospels where Jesus fastens a whip of cords and goes into the temple and he chases out all the money changers... Uh, if you've ever thought that maybe that makes you a little bit uncomfortable because it makes Jesus seem maybe a bit angry and we don't know if Jesus should be angry it maybe makes him seem irrational, maybe this vision of Daniel's will put your mind at ease and put your mind at peace. Because as Jesus is chasing them with the whip and driving them out of the temple, he says this. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So what he's saying is not that it's just vulgar that they're conducting commerce in the temple. That's not what he's saying. He is saying something to the effect that this is the outworking of the evil little horn. And this is to be a house of prayer for the nations, and you've made it into a den of robbers. When Cyrus enabled the Jews to go back and to build the temple, God commanded a house to be built that would be a house of prayer for the Jews and for the ram and for the goat and all the nations of the world. And corrupt powers were interfering with that mission, so Jesus drove them out. And I keep going back, you know, we've been in Ephesians, and so I keep going back to Ephesians when I think about Daniel, and I go back to Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, which says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ we are God's temple. We are a house of prayer. And if we don't pray for the nations, who will? Nobody will pray for the nations if we don't, because we are the house of prayer that God's designed. And by and large, the nations don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing at all. Many nations, including our own, have been deceived by the evil one. But God is not content with that. And the vision that we get at the end is that God does something about it. So I read this at the very beginning of our meeting tonight, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God doesn't want to destroy the nations. God wants to heal the nations because they've been deceived by the evil ones. And we are interceding as a house of prayer for the nations so that that can happen. Nations are notoriously deceived. They make themselves into little towers of Babel and they make themselves great. And kings of bold face hurt their people in the process. But the church, we the church, exist within nations. We don't exist independently. We live in nations. The church everywhere lives in nations. And so we're to pray for godly leaders, like in 1 Timothy 2, here and abroad, that they would rule well. And it'd be real easy for us to just hunker down and congratulate ourselves on our purity while we watch the world burn. But that's not what God has in mind. And as Israel sacrificed rams and goats for the ram and for the goat in the nations of the world, we keep the world in view in our worship and in our prayers. We are a house of prayer. Amen? Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's stand.